the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And before we do our thing today, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on our cool interviews coming up, any of our topics. Give us a rating, write a comment, tell us how much you love Mortal Kombat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd rather DM us questions, topics, suggestions, you can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Or on our Instagram at act2writers. You can also find me, Tasha, on Instagram at Story Thursday or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And you can find me on Instagram at Josh Hallman and Twitter at Joshua Hallman. I'm going to start with a This Week in Writing that is kind of then tailors into what we're actually talking about today, which is the development process. Oh, wow. Can I say something real quick? Yeah. Something that I loved about Mortal Kombat? Yeah. Is when they would have like a vicious kill and then someone's like, fatality. And yes. I was like, what? <laughs> Where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> Kano wins. Oh, my God. Oh, I love it so much. All right. So my, my This Week in Writing is about how I watched Mortal Kombat on HBO Max, and I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Uh, <laughs> the action felt so satisfying to me as a fan of the games. I think you can tell it's on a low budget, but also that it was very cool with what they did i think they they did a great job with what they did it's very kind of like really great b-movie material that is that is not a compliment by the way but yeah keep going i don't think mortal i don't think mortal kombat i don't think it is (laughs) i don't think mortal kombat thinks it's a b-movie well it is definitely a b-movie but a fantastic one so backhanded compliment i guess oh geez Oh, man, just digging that hole. All right. Well, okay. So I I didn't just want to give my unsolicited opinion about Mortal Kombat. But today we are talking about the development process. And I kind of wanted to talk about the development process of Mortal Kombat a very little bit because I went down a mini rabbit hole myself because I really enjoyed the movie. And I want to say up front that I actually know nothing about this development scenario because I wasn't there, right? But I went on a mini little fact-finding mission and sort of put pieces together that I could. So Mortal Kombat is directed by Simon McQuaid. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He's Australian. He has never directed a movie before. Not once. Wow. His background is entirely in commercials. The movie was written by Greg Russo, who's actually repped by your agent, Joshua. Mm. And for him, it's also his first produced credit. He has, however, it seems, been in the business chugging along for quite a while. Like he, he has an intern credit on a movie from way back in 2004 and has been working steadily upwards ever since. And he has, it seems like, about a dozen projects or so in some kind of version of development hell around town with some fairly big name producers and in fact he has a script called category six set up at new line with broken road producing both of whom were involved with mortal kombat so broken road they did movies like tag paul blart isn't it romantic and new line has been around forever they've done movies like elf and blade they're crazy prolific yeah So Greg Russo writes Category 6, and it presumably has been in development hell with Broken Road and New Line for quite a while. It is listed as inactive. And then he goes and writes Mortal Kombat. And now on IMDb, 
rather, it says that Greg is attached to Category 6, which has just been announced. Yay! Category 6 is new. So we know, of course, that's not true. Category 6 has been around for a while. But because he got this major movie made, which is really awesome, his old script is now being sort of touted as a fresh new project. Yeah. Now a few... I know. It, that's 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 the way it goes, and that's, I guess, the way it should be. That's part of the smoke and mirrors, I think, of the business. Yeah. Now, also credited as a writer on the movie is Dave Callahan, who we are all more familiar with. He wrote the Expendables movies. He wrote Wonder Woman 1984, Zombieland 2, Shang-Chi, apparently, Spider-Verse 2. Also, it says that <laughs> the story of Mortal Kombat, the story by credit, is by Greg Russo and Oren Uziel, whose name yeah. I've never said out loud. But we, we know him. He wrote Cloverfield Paradox, 22 Jump Street. I love him. Yeah, he's in sort of the J.J. Abrams crew, yeah. basically. So now this is me without knowing anything about any of this development actual process because I was not there again. It seems like the development process went something like this. Oren probably came up with the idea. That's why he's got story by credit, right? Maybe he was brought in to pitch on it. They knew they wanted to develop this property and, and rejuvenate it again. So he came in and pitched. Maybe he developed it for a while, maybe even wrote an outline. But then he got busy or he dropped out for just some other reason. And maybe that's when Greg Russo came in and he pitched for the job because he was already known by the producers, right? He had something with New Line. He had something with Broken Road. They were both producers on this project. So they already liked him because they were developing Category 6 with him. So Greg comes in and he works on the script. But maybe Greg didn't quite get it there for whatever reason. And they needed someone else who's a bit more flashy to come in and kind of make it all come together. So they hire Callahan to come in and do some polishing, some rewrites. But whatever happened, he does enough work on the script that he warrants a shared writing credit, which is something the guild very much pays attention to. Like who, how, like literally how much did you rewrite? Like that's something that they will pay attention to and litigate on. So he wrote enough to technically get shared writing credit. And we know that he came after Greg, right? That he was the rewriter because Greg is credited with coming up with the story. So the point is, is that this complicated series of events is kind of bouncing between writers to end up with this amazing, most amazingest films, Mortal Kombat. Yeah. It's basically what we're talking about today. And <laughs> I just wanted to sort of give that as an example of a movie that's fresh in our minds that that process happened to them too. That's a good story. That's a good, good, uh, good job assuming a lot and uh, putting... <laughs> And uh, I feel like I'm going to get sued because I just made up this story yeah. about how it all went down. That was a fictionalized story by Tasha. No, it was a great story. I actually think that's probably true. But yeah, and uh, I didn't have a This Week in Writing, so thanks for asking. But yeah, let's move into the uh, main topic. <laughs> all right. Today, again, we're talking about the development process, but kind of specifically development hell. Josh, how would you define development hell? It's essentially when you're script is just stuck in kind of like a purgatory at a production company and there's a producer attached but nothing's happening and it's just just sitting there like someone has the rights to it but nothing's happening with it because 
directors have come and gone, actors have come and gone, and then at some point everyone's like, fuck it, it's gone. It's so terrible. I just want to say, one day I was walking past a, like a little coffee shop, and I heard some writers talking. And the one writer said, hey, so what's up with your script? And the other writer said, you know, it's still kicking around. And I felt for him. I think I've probably talked about this before on the podcast, but it resonated with me because I was like, oh, that's a perfect way to say it's, first of all, not dead. Second of all, <laughs> not in development hell. Third, something might happen with it. Fourth, nothing's happening with it. <laughs> so I've got, a, I've got a bunch of projects just kicking around. So many projects just kicking around. <laughs> How would you, is that how you would define development hell? I mean, I feel like your version was much more kind and less full of expletives, but yes, it is a seven circle of hell (laughs) (laughs) that where usually a writer is working their ass off often for free, always for months and months, maybe even years. And in this process, you're getting notes on a Monday because like the head of a studio saw Paddington bear five with his family over the weekend. And now he wants your movie to be animated with bears. And you're like, wait, the movie we're writing together is a horror movie about motherhood and you want it to be about bears. And now suddenly you're writing a bear movie because that's the movie they now want to make. And then you turn in your bear draft and now they don't want to do a bear draft because that's just weird. Who wants to do a bear draft about motherhood? And that to me is development hell. (laughs) Yeah, no, that sounds about right. I mean. You just get, yeah, you just caught, get caught in a writing spiral doing nothing. And I think deep down inside, you like, you have a little, little hope, but you're like, what, what's going on with this? That's what it is. It's all those little carrots that they give you, which we'll talk about as we go through in terms of how they get you through development hell and why you get trapped in it. You think I'm not going to do that. That's not going to be me. And then suddenly you're in the middle of it and you don't know how it happened to you. Yeah. And I think we're going to, we're going to. I don't want to say we're going to be negative because there's nothing negative about this podcast. But what I would like to say is that towards the end, we're going to, we're going to share some stories that are uplifting, hopeful, optimistic, and proof that scripts never die. And it's the carrot that we all kind of grapple with because you're like, Oh, well, maybe something will happen and maybe this will happen. And uh, yeah, scripts never go away. That's the problem. That's how everything gets stuck in development. Hell you're like, maybe it'll resurface. I agree. There is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not all fire and brimstone, though I will probably talk about it that way. Yeah, no, I'm going to be uplifting. Let's go. Uh, (laughs) Development is great. All right. I think to start, I just want to talk generally about how do you even get a project into development to even get to the gates of development hell? So I can think of one example, for instance, Josh, where this happened to you. I feel like you went into development hell on a project and it was because of me where I had a general with someone, right? And in that general, Uh I realized that you should meet him. (laughs) And so I sent you guys up on this general and then you suddenly got stuck in this development hell situation with him that felt like it never died. And I felt so bad for many, many, it almost felt like a year. I don't know how long you were working on that project with that producer. I had um, forgotten about that actually (laughs) just now. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, um, yeah, that was development hell. How long did it last? Do you remember? It wasn't that long. I, f- I actually kind of put the, like, I ended it at some point, mm-hmm. like mentally. I was like, I'm done. Like, I just kind of moved on from it. And as it turned out, I think that company ended up kind of going belly up and something happened with him. And 
it was it was good for me. It was like a cleanse of my soul because it was yeah. like I could move on from it because now this company ceases to exist. And what happened to the script? Oh, yeah, it's just kicking around. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing happened. It's just on my computer. I've actually revisited it before. It's been a while, but, I mean, it's fucking dead. It's yeah. burning. Burning yeah. in development hell. <laughs> the seventh <laughs> ring. Yeah, my biggest development hell, which we may or may not talk about at the end if we have some time, but it came from this feature spec that I wrote that none of my agents liked or really understood. And then I met a producer who somehow, for some reason, liked it. And we embarked on what ended up being something like a five-year journey of turning Whoa. that feature spec into a TV pilot with so many twists and turns along the way. I mean, speaking to Josh's upbeat positive note, I did end up selling the TV pilot, Boom. but wanted oh. to give up so many times along the way because it felt like I was you know, going through Dante's Inferno. And you were working on other things at the time. It's not like the only thing you were working on for five years. That's true. Which I actually think is important that can get you through this development hell process that is when you have other things and you can kind of take your attention and focus off of this fucked up project. Yeah. Well, it's a catch 22 though, because the project continues to linger and linger and linger because it takes you so long to kind of revise it and rewrite it. Cause you're working yeah. on other things. And then that just, it's just a spiral. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I feel like Josh is very positive about this process and he has really cool stories. So I don't want to, I don't want to keep him down with my, my miserable version of the development process. No, it, I'm, I'm with you. It really, it's frustrating. I'm worried that like, maybe I might be falling into it currently with, with one or two things. Mm. It's scary. And I just can't let my mind go there. Gotta have hope. That's it. Hope dies last. All right. So what is the development process? I, I think really this is a much longer topic than one episode. So we'll probably revisit it and cover kind of how it works, all the different ways you can get something into development, the pitfalls to look out for in development. We'll definitely get producers in here to talk about their side because I think that's very important to understand where they're coming from as a writer. But let's talk very broadly about two possible paths to development hell in particular. And I think the first version is a producer likes your script. Now, the following story may or may not be based on my experience, but let's say mm. you meet with a producer. They ask you what scripts you have. You send them your passion project. You love it so much. Hope that they do too. It's a feature spec and they do. They like it. They don't love it, but they like it. They can yep. see potential in it. So they want to develop it with you. Josh, I, I know you're going through the same thing right now on one of your projects. Very similar thing. And I think this is a good deal for you as a writer to pair with a producer who likes your project for a couple reasons. One is if your reps don't like your spec script. So they are not going to try to sell it because it would tarnish their name to just try and, um, you know, peddle it around town, this kind of crappy script that they don't like. So you're not going to be selling this thing to Universal, let alone financing it to produce it independently anytime soon, unless you get a producer on board who can gather that financing or package it with a director or an actor so it looks kind of shiny and new to someone like Universal or Warner Brothers. But unless you yourself are this massive hustler with an insane amount of like A-list level connections, it's going to be really hard for you to do that yourself. So you need to take a producer onto your project so that they can do that work. That's their job. 
another way that this could be a good deal for you is if your script isn't really there yet. Like you've written the best version of your script that you can write on your own, but you can tell that something's missing. Like people aren't responding to your script the way you would hope. So mm -hmm. you need help. And the, the producer might be able to help you with notes to get it to the place that it needs to be to go to market. And I think a good producer will also have their finger on the pulse, right? So that they know what buyers like Universal or Netflix are looking for right now. So a good producer will know both how to turn your vision into a viable movie and also how to make it appealing to the market. So those are two reasons why this is a good deal. So now you're paired with a producer and they start to give you notes and you're working for free because that carrot is, hey, when the script is good enough, the producer will do all that heavy lifting to package it and take it out to market. But you're getting a lot of notes. Meanwhile, doing this for free, so you have to take other jobs. So maybe you can only work on this at 6 a.m. or maybe at 9 p.m. So mm -hmm. it might, what usually might take a few weeks is now taking months each round. You hope the producer is going to say this is perfect. Instead, she says, here are more notes. <laughs> and when you're exhausted, you just want to call the whole thing off because yeah. you feel like you just have nothing left to give, which I've definitely come to writer's group with scripts where I'm like, you guys, I don't, I think this is it. I'm tapping out. I can't do this. <laughs> Tell me what I need to do here. That desperation is very real and very frequent. So after all this work, the producer will keep you on that hook because they'll say, don't you want this movie to get made? We're almost there. And so you keep going. You find that reserve of energy because you have put that much time into it now. And at this point, it's like, that time is wasted if I don't just keep going through hell to get there. Cut to maybe a year later, it's either dead, it's kicking around, or you've made headway, but it's been a long ass time to get there. Yeah, and have you been in the position before where you have told the producer, I'm done, I'm out, I'm tapping out of this? I honestly don't think I have. Yeah. Because I, pretty much engage in projects that I really love and and just see the potential of. So it's not like I'm I'm engaging on projects that I'm like, eh, like I could see this being a movie. Eh, it could be a good job. Eh, it's a way in. It's something yeah. that I re really, really see and really believe in. And so I'm kind of not happy to work on it for free, but am willing to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in the TV pilot I ended up selling, that was the closest I ever came to quitting which is interesting because it ended up being a success story in a way. Well, that's all success stories. Good <sighs> ones. Yeah. It's like you're on the yeah, brink. You're on the brink of giving up. And then you rise from the ashes holding a, a iPad with a PDF on it. <laughs> <laughs> Take this. I'm done. <laughs> All right, so that's kind of the producer version, walking through what that path could look like. Another version might be the studio version, which in some ways is worse and better. I don't know, you guys decide. Josh, you, you tell me <laughs> which, you, which you would kind of prefer to go through. So let's tell this one from the exec's point of view. So the exec gets sent a spec script and maybe it's competitive, meaning other studios are looking at this spec at the same time. Maybe they're gonna buy it. 
if you've heard our interview with Dan Kunkka and the insanity of the spec sale process, you kind of know what I'm talking about. So there's a spec out there that's competitive and I, the executive, if I don't get this spec for my bosses, they're going to be mad at me. This will be such a win for me in my career if I can just get this script deal done. I'll be hailed a hero, I'll get a promotion. So I convince my bosses to outbid everyone and buy it and now I have it and I'm the exec on it and in my victory I reread it and I realize, shit, this is not a movie. <laughs> Like I was so dazzled by the concept of it and the competition from other studios that I didn't realize this entire second act is flat. This third act climax doesn't pay off. This is not a movie. But it's okay, it's fine. My job is to develop movies. I am a development executive. So as part of the deal when we bought the script, uh, we guaranteed the writer a rewrite step. That's pretty common. And what that means is we send the writer a notes document and it's just a list of things to fix. And for however, however many dollars that's negotiated by her lawyers in her deal, she will go off and make those changes to her script that we kind of tell her to make. Now, the WGA minimum for a rewrite of a screenplay, just kind of as an aside, for a high-budget movie, because we're at a studio, is $38,759. And 17 cents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's the absolute minimum that the studio can pay you to do a rewrite. Now, if you, by the way, just again, as an aside, if you are not a WGA writer yet and you sell your script this way, you are now a WGA writer because all studios are WGA signatories, which means if you work on their project, you have to be guild. So as a WGA writer, that's the minimum you can make on a rewrite from a studio. But more than likely, because I'm an executive and I want to save my boss's money because I look like a hero if I do that, I might call this a polish because polishes are cheaper. A polish is only $19,380. Now, I'll probably give the same amount of notes, but we'll call it a polish. So I have my assistant fix up the notes document. We send it off to the writer and the writer disappears for a few months and they come back with this revised script. And oh my God, it's terrible. Maybe... Mm -hmm. They literally like addressed all of my notes, meaning they took my solutions that I put in the notes doc and they, they just did them, which means they didn't think for themselves and they didn't fi find creative solutions. I was gonna say, you know what's really been interesting about this exercise is that when you started as the writer with the producer, you were from the writer's point of view, but now we're from the executive's pro uh, point of view. And I just- Do you empathize with the executive? Yeah, a little bit. I'm like, yo, writer, <laughs> get, get that shit, shit together. together. <laughs> Let's go. Come on. You had a perfect <laughs> notes document. You execute and move on. And why did it take you months? It should have been 30 days. All right. Keep going. Sorry. Well, okay. So regardless of why <laughs> it happened, maybe my notes sucked as an executive. Maybe the writer just wasn't, wasn't feeling it. Regardless, now this draft feels dry. It's like further away from being a movie than it started. And I will say that when I worked at Universal, I can almost safely say never got a revision where we were like, yep, this is the movie. We're done. No more notes. We're good. There was always more notes. There's always yeah. more notes. Even when the movie got greenlit, it was still with the caveat of we still have a lot of notes. So the process is never ending. It's interesting because I feel like if as a writer, when you look at your script, don't you always feel like, oh, I can change this. I can tweak this one line. I can do this, this, this. Like there's always little tweaks. I feel like when you look at your own screenplay, you can always make. 
I don't know. Not that I'm taking a side of the suits, but I'm just saying that. uh, Sounds like you're a traitor. No, I mean, I just get it. Like, you you know, people look at a script and it's really hard for executives and producers to not want to put their thumbprint and their stamp on something. So they keep fucking changing and everyone's so insecure and uncertain that they just keep changing and changing and go for it. Keep going. (laughs) Well, now it sounds like you're on the side of the writer. I think regardless, it seems important for us to get producers in here to talk about their side of things yeah. because fuck you suits a double-edged sword. <laughs> what a roller coaster of emotions that was all right the Zoa, so... <laughs> Zoa energy drink is kicking in getting a water keep going unofficially sponsored by Zoa today all right so i am the executive and i've gotten this shitty script back from my writer and i have to go tell my bosses now that look the writer fucked up i'm definitely not going to tell them that my notes were terrible that's not what i'm going to say my story is that the writer is stupid and can you believe it you know that 19,380 you spent well we now have to spend more to hire someone else to come in and fix this shitty script and because as a studio executive I find it very hard to imagine that if a writer failed once, they're going to succeed the next time. So I'm not going to give that writer another chance. I'm going to hire someone new to do this job. And well, my boss's point of view is we spent a million dollars to buy this hot spec script out from every other studio. So yeah, we got to give it the old college try. Let's throw more money at it. So we fire the original writer. We hire a new one. And that process takes potentially months. It's really interesting how they compile writers lists, by the way. So the way that they do that is they will talk to agents and managers. They will get those reps to send them samples of writers that they like for this project, or they put writers on there that they already know. That's part of their job is to know who's who in the business. And now as an executive, I have to read all these samples. So I've got like, you know, 50 to 75 samples I've got to read. And the writer's list, I think, is interesting to talk about for just a second. If you've never seen one, a writer's list is typically just a column of names divided by first tier and second tier writers. So if you ever see one and you're on the second tier, it hurts. (laughs) At least you're not on the third tier. It's very true. And there may be a third tier. Mm. The column of names is going to consist of the writer followed by their agent's name and the agency company. And then the writer's one to three credits that are very well known. So that means that either you've had a big movie that's already been made, or in kind of the more rare case, you have a big script that you're currently working on that everyone knows about. For example, if I was, say, the writer on the live-action Mulan movie at Disney, but it hadn't come out yet, I might still get on that list because they could just put she's writing Mulan, right? But what that also means is that the only way you are getting on a studio writer's list for a rewrite job is if you already have recognizable credits. So you can't just be a guy who has a bunch of scripts in development hell. You are not going to end up on that list. So now I have my writer's list. We have to hire one of these guys. That means they probably have to come in. They have to pitch. That's going to take a few months. The deal's going to take a few months. So now we're like months and months after I even read this draft as a studio exec. And so now this rewriter is going off to do their thing. Let's say best case scenario, they turn it in and it's it's good. This is the one we want, which again, like I said, never happens. Then we go to a director. Let's attach a director. Awesome. Now they have notes. <laughs> and the wheel just continues to turn. This is what I mean. I could go on and on about how this works, but those are just two examples of development hell. And I'm honestly exhausted just talking about it. That's how it happens. And I think it's... 
it's just so important to just say like when you're the writer you're just the entire time it's like you're hopeful it's taking a mental toll on you because you're always thinking about it and then when you think you do a great job and you find out you do a shitty job then it hurts even more it's it's a hard position to be in yeah but everyone's in it like there's not a writer that hasn't been in development hell or dealing with producers and you're just so far down the road so that's my super negative sort of rant about the development process and i know josh has sort of unexpected development stories that are success stories so i will turn it over to you because i don't oh, want yeah. this whole thing to be sad and well, scary first of all i don't really actually think it was that negative really I thought it was going to be a lot more negative yeah oh thank you yeah i mean it was just kind of the reality of the situation so what does that say about the reality i guess all right when we were talking about doing this episode it, we were gonna, this all started as something else i was going to talk to you because i was reading these different articles about certain films and they were like these crazy stories attached to them and i was like that's interesting and so i wanted to kind of talk about that we were trying to figure out how this happened but it all ties back to development hell essentially or just development in general and i'm like very interested in stories where films have succeeded in development and stories of like these films that end up changing the lives of like screenwriters actors everyone who's attached these urban legend type stories about film development and a small but good example is like with Back to the Future, they were going to call the, the, someone, a producer had suggested the title to be Spaceman from Pluto. Could have <gasps> changed the history For of the Back film. to the Future? Yeah, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, so basically Zemeckis and Bob Gale, they get this note from a producer over at Universal and it's like, hey, we want to change the title of the film uh, to Spaceman from Pluto. And then like Steven Spielberg very famously wrote back a letter to this producer basically saying, hey, that was really funny, great joke, we all had a good laugh about it. And the producer was so embarrassed. And he was like the president of Universal at the time, I think. And he was so embarrassed by it, he just never brought it up again. That's amazing. What a way to handle that situation. Yeah, so just do what Spielberg does whenever you get a bad note. You're like, no, I don't think so. Okay, so I'm gonna start with the 2015 film the Wedding Ringer, that stars Kevin Hart and Josh Gad, and is written by Jeremy Gerlich, who also directed, and his writing partner named Jay Lavender, which, what a fucking name. All right, so this film, it evolved from a spec script that was originally entitled The Golden Tux. It was purchased by Dimension Films in 2002, and at that time, Todd Phillips came on as a producer, who obviously is the director of The Hangover and The Joker, and um, Vince Vaughn came on to attach himself as the star. So then Vince Vaughn ends up leaving the project, Todd Phillips leaves the project, and flash forward to the year 2013, Tasha, and Screen Gems and Miramax had agreed to produce the film, which now has Kevin Hart and Josh Gad attached to it. And then the name was officially changed to The uh, Wedding Ringer. So Tasha, I ask you, how does a film get written in 2002 and then come out in 2015? Oh, you don't know the answer? That's so great. I'm going to fucking tell you. Okay. <laughs> so This is like a really aggressive fireside chat. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> All right, go. I'm in, though. I want to know why. All right. So when the Walt Disney Company sold Miramax to a holding company in 2010, all of the assets that were transferred, including 642 unproduced screenplays 
exchanged hands. And according to a source from the New York Times, uh, New York Times article that I did research on for this, <laughs> someone said, and I quote, the scripts were valued in the transaction at exactly nothing. Oh. So all told, 35,000 boxes of paperwork ended up changing hands in the Miramax sale. And there were boxes, these 35,000 boxes were shipped via 18 tractor trailers from New Jersey to a warehouse in the Valley. So these are just what? filled with tons of random scripts, random papers. And then this producer named Adam Fields, Adam Fields, shout out to this guy. I don't know who he is. He cut a deal with the new owners and this allowed him to uh, basically dig through this big slush pile of all of these viable properties. So just to be clear, these scripts exchanged hands, it goes to a brand new company, and then someone named Adam Fields ended up making a deal to look through all these old ass scripts that were basically dead in the water, they were stuck in development hell, and uh, we're gonna get to Adam in a second, but first, as I mentioned, this film, it got pretty close to getting made, it had Vince Vaughn, it had Todd Phillips, and it didn't pan out because Vince Vaughn, he went on to do Wedding Crashers. Mm -hmm. And the writer-director said that their script at that time, the Golden Tux had a, had a lot of uh, similarities. And once Vince Vaughn ended up leaving, Todd Phillips ended up leaving. And there was this quote that I read in this old Grantland uh, article, which was Bill Simmons' old uh, company. He said, when Wedding Crashers sold as a pitch, it was probably about six months after our script sold. And our script had a whole bunch of similar things, including an entire sequence about how to crash a wedding. And it was really hard for us to take at the time. There were jokes in Wedding Crashers that could have been taken directly from our movie. Mm. But everything happens for a reason. Because Wedding Crashers came out, it was huge, and Vince and Jay Lavender had been talking about doing the breakup. So they all did the breakup together. And I guess the point of that story is, like, this happens when you're in development hell. Is like, you might have something in development, and then something sells six months later, and seems like it just kills your project. Mm -hmm. And also, there were a few other scripts at that time, like I Love You, Man, and a movie called The Wedding Date, which apparently were pretty similar. Going back to Adam Fields, he, was, he ends up searching through these boxes. He finds this script called The Golden Tux, and he was basically the guy thrust behind getting this movie made because he ends up taking it into the new company, and basically what he did is, according to this New York Times article, is he did what producers did. He dangled it, and in this case, he dangled it over a lunch before his former assistant named Scott Strauss, who had become an executive vice president at Screen Gems under its current president, Clint Culpepper. And Mr. Strauss, well, Scott Strauss, he knew the screenplay already as a sample from like 11 or 12 years ago. And... Adam Fields is trying to convince Culpepper. He's like, make this movie, make this movie. And what Culpepper ended up saying, according to his side of the story, is that what was missing in the Golden Tux is the heart. It had no heart in its friendship story. So Which that was really? his note to add some friendship to it. And once that ended up happening, hmm. the script got made. And then in just closing, the director, uh, Gerlich, he said, this was, a, this was a good quote, he said, I never think anything is dead. That's it. That should be the quote of the day. Yeah, so we're going to go back and be prepared. <laughs> you already know the quote of the day. So anyway, that's a pretty crazy story, right? Like, this is like things never die. That's such a good reminder because I do feel like we're often told something's dead and just forget about it and leave it. It sucks, right? It's especially if we get passed on a lot by people. Yeah. 
And I've definitely been in the position, and I know you have, well, everyone has, where you get passed on a lot. And I have actually been told, because I think people can see the pain in my face, that it's like, hey, don't worry, some scripts never die. We'll talk about it and this and that. But like deep mm. down, you're like, it's dead. It's dead. But I've, I'm currently in a position that where a script kind of got revived after a little bit of time. That's right. Should I do one more story? Yeah. Great. Because this is like the one I've been waiting for, this one. Yeah. I, I, I did this one second. I feel like some people might know this, but I ended up reading this headline and it really like it blew my mind. And it was like this urban legend that Die Hard 3, which is a fucking classic movie and very underrated. Classic. My favorite one. Wait, what? Die Hard 3 is your favorite one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> Wait, this is the one with Jeremy Irons and Samuel L. Jackson, right? Yeah, I, I yeah. love it too. And it's like, you know, I really love it. This, this might be an entire podcast. I love Die Hard 3 and it's like close to being my favorite one, but I feel like it's like blasphemy to say that it's better than Die Hard. I don't give a shit. Come at me, bro. Holy shit. Okay. <laughs> you can also email us at actyourwriters.gmail.com <laughs> if you have strong feelings about what was just said here. <laughs> yeah, you can find Tasha on Instagram. All right. So Die Hard 3 it was written by Jonathan Henslight. He wrote, he was just crushing it at the time. He wrote The Rock, oh. The Saint. Oh, I love that movie. I know. He uh, he wrote the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Oh, damn. Uh, he executive produced Con Air and Gone in six, 60 Seconds. Holy shit. Dude, this guy's awesome. This guy would be our friend back then. Yeah. Hey, Jonathan, I'm coming for your career, buddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> he sold a screenplay tentatively titled Simon Says to 20th Century Fox in the year 1993 for $1 million. Oof. That's apparently how awesome this script was. He said that he had an idea for a story that came to him when he thought of an incident with his childhood friend and he had injured one of his friends. What if this friend had never gotten over it and he sought revenge years later? Amazing. And it just got that actually, I only threw that in because it got me thinking like, what did he do to his friend? Yeah, that's, that's... fucking intense. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Fox purchased the script with the intention of turning it into a starring vehicle for Brandon Lee, Ooh. who we all know from The Crow and had a very tragic passing. And at that time, he made a film called Rapid Fire. And the original screenplay would star a New York cop named Alex Bradshaw with his co-star that became Zeus Carver being an African-American woman. And obviously in Die Hard 3, this is Sam Jackson. So, of course... Lee, he was killed in 1993, filming The Crow. The script went back into a, a pile of available projects that were owned by Fox, and it was still kind of well-regarded. And what's interesting about this is that Lee was killed in 1993 during the filming of The Crow. The script went back into a pile of available projects, still very well-regarded. And what ended up happening was everyone at this time was bringing projects to Bruce Willis, because he was turning down everything because they were trying to find a third movie to Die Hard. So when Warner Brothers and producer Joel Silver, by the way, Joel Silver has a freaking unreal IMDb page. Unreal. You need to look him up if you don't know. Joel Silver, he gets his hands on it. He also produced Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. So Joel Silver is just in everything. He's looking also, not only is he looking to make a third Die Hard, but he's like, how can I make a fourth Lethal Weapon? So they contacted Fox because he gets his hands on this script and they try to buy the script. 
but the sale never occurred because apparently it was a little too dark for a Lethal Weapon 4 film. Mm. And at that time, various scripts were being written for Die Hard 3. There was a script called Troubleshooter that mm -hmm. was almost going to be Die Hard 3. But like at the very final second, Bruce Willis said, no, I'm not doing this because it was really close to Under Siege. And this movie that was written for Die Hard 3 and Bruce Willis ended up turning into Speed, tr Speed 2 Cruise Control. Whoa. So imagine if you would... Die Hard 3 would have been a cruise movie. Right. Yeah. Also, that's like the way these movies, these scripts are just tailored to franchises when they were never intended to be is for some reason endlessly fascinating to me. Me too. I, I think I need to do a deep dive on a troubleshooter and the story of Speed 2 Cruise Control that didn't star Keanu Reeves. I agree. So eventually... John Matiernan, the director of Die Hard, he gets his hand on Simon, Simon Says, and he loves it. He's like, I'm going to repurpose this. I want to turn it into Die Hard Part 3. He ends up making a couple tweaks to it, and lo and behold, after John McTiernan uh, kind of does his thing, it becomes Die Hard 3. That's it. That's a little anticlimactic. But I, I did read a little Q&A from the uh, screenwriter of Simon Says. Go on. Simon Says is such a wonderful success story. Should writers consider adapting their specs for franchises and pitch them that way? Mm. This kind of just ties into exactly what you just said. What a great segue. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's an interesting question, but it's uh, too much determined by the whims of the studio executives. You have so little control of that. It wasn't my idea to do that. I wrote Simon Says. It went on the spec market. And it was bought for a million dollars by Fox, and they didn't do anything with it. They fired me and started rewriting me. I was not very pleased at all. Mm. I fucking love this guy. Yeah, he walks off with a million dollars, but he doesn't get to rewrite his baby. And then what's interesting is the way that John McTiernan actually got his hands on this script is because it was directly through him. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's that. That's kind of how, like, that wasn't as much development hell, but it's just kind of, like, interesting that the script kind of shuffled around. Nothing may have happened with it. Then it gets repurposed into, a like, a trilogy or a sequel. That's fascinating. I know that J.J. Abrams has done this, right? Mm -hmm. He He's very open when you meet a bad robot. His execs are sort of told that their mission statement is to find young writers who have an exciting voice and love to work in sci-fi and fantasy with character-driven stories. And they will basically take they they want you to send them anything ideas outlines you know finished scripts and they will repurpose them if it seems to fit within like the cloverfield paradox yeah. i believe is the famous example that was a spec on its own that no one sort of understood what to do with and jj saw that it could fit into that cloverfield world and they just tailored it for that that also happened with uh, 10 cloverfield lane there you go it also recently happened with that spec ballerina that we talked about by Shea Hatton, which is now its like own thing in the John Wick universe. Right, exactly. And it, it's just so weird that these things happen, but it happens. And I wonder how often people write scripts thinking, oh, this could be like the trilogy to, or the third movie installment to John mm -hmm. Wick or whatever. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it's hard to imagine writing with that in mind. I feel like I would get, for some reason, that would trip me up because, like, yeah, oh, you can't sure. possibly predict. And then the, another problem is that if you write something that's so specific to the John Wick universe but is just certainly slightly left so that you can call it a spec and, and not trample on that IP, 
Yeah. You might suddenly have created something that's so specifically John Wick that you can't sell it anywhere else. So it still feels like the advice is to just write the thing that you love and that drives you. You write your Simon Says based on your own personal experience. And if it's great enough, someone might say it belongs in a famous franchise. Totally. All right. So I have, I have two stories of two pretty famous movies that you probably have all seen. Mm. One is a story that starts with a famous director who is at lunch one day with all of his executives and he just says that he wants to create a movie out of the internet and everyone at his company's like what does that mean and he's like i don't know like everything we're all connected through the internet and i just feel like there's something there there's a movie and his executives are like it's not a movie that's not cinematic i don't understand what it is you're seeing in your crazy brain oh shit and just every few months he would bring it up i want to do this internet thing i want to do a whole movie just on the internet and nobody understood it in fact it got to the point where the executives just didn't want to deal with it they ignored him entirely and just moved on with other business every time he would bring it up then one day uh, an assistant at the company always wanted to be a writer he steps up into the director's office and says you know that thing you keep talking about, that internet thing? What if it was a horror movie? And the director is like, yes. Yes, that's exactly what it is. That's the genre that we do this with. We do a horror movie, and that's how we access this internet movie. And that was the origins of the movie Unfriended. I love Unfriended. It's great. And it yeah. kind of it, it broke the mold and managed to be a completely tense and exciting really i mean character driven ish movie um yeah. that's completely shot online just like this director planned timur bekmambatov is the director i just find that process itself interesting that it just came from a, an assistant who's like by the way maybe it should be this wow. and it took i mean it took years for for that to really land did the assistant who was also a writer end up writing it he did really and he's now a successful tv writer oh that's amazing i love this story it's a great story and I think what's interesting, too, is that Timor has gone on to sort of use this mashup of genres. Like, I want to do something on the internet. That's the movie. But find me the story to tell within that world. He's, yeah. He calls it screen life. And he actually has a lab right now that he'll pay you some money. This kind of, it's a, essentially, it's a lab. So it's like a handful of writers who come in with their own ideas and they develop something that could work completely shot on a computer screen. And he like I said, pays you a little bit of money and it's all really low budget. So it's easy to kind of get made. And it's, it's like, he understands the rules now of how to do that. And yeah. he's just using it ad infinitum. And that's sort of his business model now. That's an amazing model. So this next one in executive at universal reads an article about street racing in Los Angeles. And the president of the production buys this article Everyone is super stoked on it. They're excited by what this is, but they don't know what it is. It's just an article about street racing. And so they start bringing in a bunch of writers to pitch on this article. That's all the writer has is just the article. And eventually they start hearing pitches and none of them are working. So they just hire a really high level producer to start kind of handling that bit of it because it's just taking yeah. so much work. So that in itself starts to feel like development hell, right? 
And it turns out that all the writers that were coming in were really kind of looking at the wrong thing. They were reading this article and thinking, well, the thing that Universal likes about it is that it's about street racing. So I'm going to do a movie about street racing. They weren't looking at it the way that it, they ended up looking at it, which is that street racing is the world. But really, this is a story about family in that world. Oh, right? shit. Someone get me a, a white tank top and a Corona. Let's go. <laughs> I know where this is going. And so there's been some sort of talk kind of recently about, well, like, what is the genius behind this Fast and Furious franchise? Because now they're on movie a million. And how did they manage it? Like, what is the Kevin Feige Marvel genius behind this? And I think the truth is a bit more messy. A, they had no idea what this movie was. It took someone to come in and say, you know what, like, let's not do this movie about street racing. That's just kind of the world they live in. Let's do it about this instead. Let's do it about characters. And I think that's a really, just as a writer, a really interesting way to think about anything when you go in to give your take is, is what is your sort of unique way in to that world. And sort of executives and thinking who are on the fast projects back in the day, sort of thinking about, places where Universal went wrong along the way. One thing is Tokyo Drift that everyone points to, where they basically like abandoned the cast that everyone kind of fell in love with yeah. and went a different way because they Universal thought the thing people are coming to the movies for is the street racing. So we don't need to pay the big money to Vin Diesel and Paul Walker. We don't need to pay them the big bucks. We can just do a movie about street racing. And of course it's considered sort of the worst movie in the group, though it's my favorite movie of the group, <laughs> having seen only Tokyo Drift, I will admit. This is just crazy to me. Do you know how excited I get when I see Vin Diesel chilling in his white tank top, like <laughs> getting ready to drive a car? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for this. But can I also just, uh, you might be saying this, I don't mean to cut you off, but there's also the element that it's essentially like point break. Fast and Furious is like, okay, point break, but with street racing in Los Angeles. What you're saying is exactly the thing. Like in Tokyo Drift, I feel like Universal forgot that, yeah. forgot what they figured out in the first movie, which is, again, they thought everyone came for the cars. But really what people wanted to do is come out and hang out with Vin Diesel and his buddies and hang, you know, be their friends and see their emotional story because it's about human connections and emotional character shit. It's not yeah. about the cars. The cars just make it super fun to watch but you come for the family aspect. And so that, I mean, that to me is just an interesting development story on its own because I think as writers and executives do this all the time, forget why we go to movies, which is not for yeah. big blow up shit. That stuff's fun, but I would not yeah. care about Harry Potter if it was just about magic. I care about it because the friendships and the emotional journey that Harry goes on. We always talk about this. It's like all about emotion and character and the relationships. And it's so important to remember, I, just a quick little story. I was working on, or I'm working on something where I had to remove a set piece and I love set pieces. Mm -hmm. You know, I love set pieces. I love and, too. um, yeah, we, we have a <laughs> mutual admiration for set pieces. And so I was kind of pulling it back and it just hurt me. Cause I was like, I really love this set piece, but then making it more character based and now the scene is still kind of some action but it's all about kind of this interaction between these two characters and it works better and you're like okay yeah i feel like always remembering to point it back to character is super important yeah i have a question for you since you've been deep diving with die hard 
because I heard a rumor. Fuck, tell me. I heard a rumor that in the Die Hard movie, the first one, that okay. they didn't have his line, like Bruce Willis's lines, planned out, really. And that what they ended up doing is shooting so that when he was shooting a gun, it would often be in front of his face so that oh. they could dub his lines later because they didn't have any of that good stuff that we love that like the quippy shit that Bruce Willis is so good at in that movie. They didn't have that in the script, but they knew they, they wanted it. So they shot a lot of stuff with his gun in his face so that they could improv later in post. Hmm. I, I didn't read anything like that, but that sounds like some, some hate on my man, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Because I feel like people would have heard that. Where'd you hear that? Is that from a human? Is that from the internet? Tell it's us. From, it's from a human. So what I'm going to do is do a little research on that. Because I don't just want to throw out this crazy rumor and, uh, yeah. you know, it being unfounded. But I will do some homework. You came in with, all right, so Mortal Kombat's a great B movie. And I loved it. <laughs> and and, and this is how it was made, with... even though I have no idea how it was made. <laughs> Wow, I am terrible. No, no, no. I, I, I think I think you're right about that. And then and then you're ending with Did you know that Bruce Willis didn't know any of his lines and then he held a gun in front of his face? And, so, and then someone else ad libbed him. I'm just kidding. All great oh, stuff. Oh wow. All right. A lot of yeah. I, I will do my homework. I'm sorry. No, you did your homework. That was amazing. So shout out to Mortal Kombat and great stuff today, Tasha. We did it. Absolutely. Thank you. That was very, very entertaining. Um, definitely we'll talk more about the development process, get more specific, kind of go narrower too, so it's not as general and maybe overwhelming. I don't know. It was. I thought yep. it was fantastic. <laughs> I was <laughs> 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 really into your stories. <laughs> All right. I'm going to wrap up with the quote of the day. That's a great idea. Your goal is to get a movie made, and you may get a movie made, or you may not. But if your goal is to tell your story, the story that you want to tell, then you have a much better shot at having that happen, because it's a much more specific goal. There has to be a single-mindedness about it. Callie Corey. Oh, that's great. That's a great quote. It ties yeah, everything together. I think so, too. because yeah, I, I loved it. <laughs> Thanks. All right, please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act2Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha3.0. And me, Josh Hallman on Instagram, Joshua Hallman on Twitter. And as always, the Act2 podcast is a production of Act2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.